Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast. This is episode 36 for March 2014. My name is Mike McGinnis, and of course, with me as always is my co-host and partner in crime, Ken Gagne. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am so excited to be here because we're recording on a Friday night, and that means the week is behind us, and right now it is the last day of February, so tomorrow's the beginning of the weekend, which is my favorite part of the week. Tomorrow's the first part of the month, which is my favorite part of the month, and in a week from now, we're going to have daylight saving time here in the United States, which means we're going to have more daylight at the last part of the day, so I'm not walking home in the dark and the cold, because it's been cold and dark and miserable in New England for so long, and I'm so tired of the snow, but I'm told in... Denver, the snow just melts. It doesn't linger and get dirty and black like it does here in Boston. Is that true? We've had probably just an average amount of snow. It's just been, we get days in a row where it doesn't really get above zero degrees and it's bitter cold and then it warms up and immediately the wind starts blowing and we get gale force winds for three days and then it snows again. Awesome. Well, you know what weather I'm looking forward to? No. The immense heat that you find in Kansas City every summer. And I, in fact, have booked my travel to go to Kansas Fest 26. And you're not going by your usual route, are you? <laughs> My usual route changes every few years. For the last three years, it's been by way of Denver. I went to Denver for two months three years ago, for two weeks two years ago, and for one weekend one year ago. And so it's been getting smaller and smaller, and this year that number of days that I'll be in Denver is zero. I try to extend my Kansas Fest trip every year in unusual ways to make it more interesting. One year, I went from Kansas City to Spokane, Washington to visit a friend in Missoula. And then another year, I flew not to Kansas City, but to St. Louis, bought a bicycle and bicycled the Katy Trail to get to Kansas City. This year, I'm going to fly to Chicago, visit a friend of mine who helped carry the Apple II to PAX East 2013 in Boston last year, and then from there, take the train to Kansas City. I was listening to your other podcast, No Quarter. I heard that your sponsor is an arcade in Chicago. I told my host in Chicago that that arcade is one of, is on the short list of things that I want to do in my weekend in Chicago. And what's the name of that arcade? The Underground Retrocade. Yes, that is where I'm going to be heading. Excellent. Yeah, he's he's sponsored us now for quite a while, and we've we've built kind of a great relationship with him. He's a great guy, great arcade. I'm told I have not been there. Carrington has, but if you're in the area, definitely check it out. Is he paying you to put that on this episode as well? <laughs> Darn, you figured I mean, me out. do we now have a sponsor? No. <laughs> no, afraid not. Well, you know, speaking of arcades, as promised, Andy Malloy and I went to Fun Spot last month. Had an awesome time. We stopped at our friend Lori and Green's house. She has about a dozen pinball machines in her and her husband's basement. And the new Star Trek pinball table, based on last year's movie, is amazing. You totally need to check it out. I mean, it's so beautiful and so clean and so much fun to play. My favorite part of our trip to Fun Spot was a point when I was walking around the game floor and I saw an older gentleman playing some pinball. You know, he was wearing suspenders, had a big thing of keys hanging off his belt. And I stared at him for a second. Then I realized, and I, I'd never seen this guy at the arcade before, but I ran over to Andy. I'm like, Andy, Andy, you got to come here. He's like, well, Ken, I'm in the middle of a game. And I said, Andy, I don't care. Come here. Follow me. So he abandons his game, he follows me, and we watch this guy play pinball for a minute. His game is done. He turns around, and he sees us standing there, and... I say, say, excuse me, but are you Bob Lawton, the founder of FunSpot? And he says, why, yes, I am. And so we chatted for a few minutes about how grateful we were that he kept all these games all these years and kept most of them up and running. And at the end of the conversation, he gives us his business card 
and his business card doubles as a gift card for $20 worth of tokens. Awesome. Yeah, you don't even have to fork it over. They just swipe it through and it becomes invalid and you keep it and it just has no credit on anymore. So it is a functional business card, but you also get 80 tokens out of it. I felt like I was being rewarded for finding him, like it was its own meta game. See if you can find the founder of FunSpot in FunSpot. Now, did you and Andy uh, make it over to the other local arcade there, Pinball Wizard Arcade? You know, usually we don't because it's just such a long day and we want to spend all of it at FunSpot, but we got up extra early that day, specifically so that we could stop at Pinball Wizard on the way home, so we did do that. Their games are in much better condition. They're also a little bit more expensive, but this time we had a Groupon, which got us $20 worth of tokens for $10, so that made it go a little bit longer. I was very surprised to see that they had a Fix-It Felix machine. Because aren't there maybe like four of those in existence? Well, no, actually. There are five or six of them that are known to be in the hands of private collectors and, and public arcades. But Disney actually has dozens of them. And they put them in the arcades that are in Disneyland, Disney World, the resorts. Oh, so the one that I was playing at Pinball Wizard might not be the same as your podcast co-hosts. It might be, it might not be. I don't know what Disney did with the ones that they had after the movie went away. Mm -hmm. They gave away a handful of them as part of the promotion for the upcoming movie, and that's where Carrington got his, and and the ones that I know about ended up in collector's hands. Uh, I don't know if some fell off the truck or if they had other giveaways, what the deal was there. I do know that there is a an interest in collectors who have not been able to get the real thing to... Uh, build replicas. And I guess they've, these days they've gotten pretty close to the, the real thing. So I will take another look for those Fix-It Felix machines this October when I am at Disney World. Wow, you're just getting all over the place. I try. I try to make a couple of trips a year besides Kansas Fest. 2013 was my year to slow down because I did way too much traveling in 2012. D.C., Phoenix, New York City, Denver, Kansas City, Peru. So 2013 was a little bit calmer and allowed me to replenish both my energy and my cash reserve so that this year I can go to Disney World, which I haven't been to since I was like six. So this is my first time going as an adult, planning my own trip, not going to have kids. going to be great. Well, you work hard to have your fun. <laughs> fun is hard work, man. <laughs> I tell you. But hey, another attraction I'm going to be checking out soon, right here in Boston, actually next door in Cambridge where I work. There is the opening, or the expansion rather, of a maker space called Danger Awesome. I love it. <laughs> I found out about this through their Kickstarter, which they recently held. I have never been to a maker space or a hacker space or any of the variety of spaces, which is interesting because I am a freelance writer for various publications, and usually that's initiated by me pitching a story. But recently, one of those publications came to me and said, Hey, Ken, do you want to write a story for us about maker spaces? And I said... Actually, no, because I've never been to one and I have no idea what goes on there. I did recommend another writer and that writer took the assignment, so the publication will get their piece. I'm excited that there's going to be a makerspace right in my own backyard. This is the neighborhood I go through on my way to work every day. And so as a result of my Kickstarter, I have admission to their launch party on March 15th. From what I'm given to understand from other people who have been to this place before their expansion, it's basically like a laser cutting space. That's most of what they specialize in. But uh, nonetheless, I'm just going to go and check it out and see what exactly goes on in a makerspace. Sounds like fun. I hope so. We have one here in Denver called uh, Den Hack. I went there once, and I, I'm not real good at meeting groups of people where I don't know anybody else. 
And when I got there, it was pretty clear that they were all good friends and I just didn't feel that great. So I didn't stay and it had nothing to do with them. They were very like, Oh no, stay. But, uh, I chickened out. Sure. I've been to board game nights that are like that, where they're all playing games with people that they know, and there's just not a lot of opportunity to ingratiate yourself. That's exactly what that was. But it looked like a cool place. One last item I want to mention before we finally dive into introducing our guests this month, and that is a little bit of self-congratulations, a little bit of patty on the back. We previously mentioned that OpenApple turned three last month, and... Uh, neither of us took to the Open Apple blog to make a big deal out of that, but we certainly did on our own time. Uh, I have my Apple 2-Bits blog that I write every week, and I used one of those weeks to talk about the facts of how the podcast came to be and why. And then you, Mike, you also wrote your own blog post. Had you already read mine at that point? I had, but I had I had a rough draft of what eventually ended up on uh, 6502lane.net. And it was nice reading yours actually because it helped me reorder some memories and like, and then I posted my thoughts on the matter. Yeah. And I really liked yours because it, rather than just being a cold reciting of the facts like mine was, you really talked more about, you know, what the podcast means to us and the implications it may have for the Apple II community and our motivations for doing the show. And I thought between the two, it was a really nice perspective on three years of podcasting. Oh, well, thank you. Your post, it's great because it took me 1,500 plus words to get to the same conclusion, and yours was succinct and and, and smart, as you said, fact-based. And so anyone who doesn't want to read my blathering, go right to Ken's blog. (laughs) Well, I don't know that we necessarily reached the same conclusion, but one number I want to share is that as of the end of our previous episode, which was actually our 41st, if you take into account all the special episodes and unnumbered episodes, we have produced 59 hours and 39 minutes of airtime on this show. That's a lot of audio. Yeah, if this was a half-hour sitcom, we would have produced 162 episodes and we would have run for eight seasons. Wow, so we made the magic syndication number. That's right. So from here on out, baby, it's all reruns. Hi, this is Charles Mangan, and you're listening to Open Apple. The conference on everybody's mind this month is probably Kansas Fest, but before we get there, there are lots of other great vintage computing opportunities for us to attend all around the United States, and we want to talk to the gentleman who has been responsible for one of the premier events for years now, and that is the Vintage Computer Festival East. The man behind that event is Evan Koblenz. Hi, Evan. Hey, Ken. Hi, Mike. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm very happy to be here. And we're happy to have you. So, Evan, I think I first met you, was it VCF East 2.0? That's correct, in Boston, 2004. Wow. It hasn't always been sequential, because this is 9.0, but that was 10 years ago, and yet it was only seven VCFs ago. We did skip a year or two here and there to regroup and rebuild. They've always been .0. This year is .1, <laughs> because last year, usually our events in the springtime, our facility in central New Jersey, it was in the hardest-hit county in New Jersey from Hurricane Sandy, and shortly before the event, we still didn't have electrical power from Sandy. We were on a generator. Wow. So uh, we decided to postpone it a year and regroup once again. And being good computer nerds, we called it 9.1. Makes perfect sense to me. We certainly do want to talk to you a lot more about VCF, but let's take a step back first. What is it that brings you on to the Open Apple podcast tonight? What is your history with the Apple II? Well, Apple II was the first computer I owned. Let's see, I'm 39. I was born in 74. Same year as the Mark 8 mini computer. I guess at home as a child, I got, you know, Atari and television, not in that order. Sometime around maybe fourth grade or so, my elementary school had one Commodore VIC-20 on a big rolling cart. 
and they brought it around, taught us logo, you know, turtle graphics. And in middle school, sixth grade, we used Apple II Pluses. And I grew up in a very blue-collar town. Everyone had a Commodore 64. But my mom was a secretary for the school district, so we got the discount on the Apple II. So I had the 2E Platinum and the Qualipad and the ImageRator 2 and the Duo Disc and the whole setup. So I was a happy kid. And one thing I remember is my Commodore friends and I argued Ford and Chevy, Apple and Commodore. 65 and what now? You know, we didn't know it was the same chip inside. We, we thought they were a bitter enemy. You know, we didn't know that. We were children. And looking back, it's kind of funny because we had, you know, the same computer, basically. We had no idea. Wait a minute. You're saying it's the same CPU? OMG. All this <laughs> fighting for nothing. <laughs> Who knew when you were a child? And what were you doing with that Apple II? Mostly basic. You know, my parents would buy me books and I would code in basic. And once they worked, I'd start making changes, you know, and made a lot of banners on print shop for my parents parties and family celebrations and stuff, played a lot of video games. The usual, I think it's safe to say. The Apple II was your first computer, but it sounds like your collection has grown to encompass many platforms since then. I wish I still had my original Apple II. But I sold it in the summer of 1992 when I went to college and bought a 486. Oh. <laughs> and uh, at the time, it made sense. Apple II was horribly obsolete and, you know, it made perfect sense. And then many years later, I got into collecting and I was like, darn it. I still had. <laughs> you know? Did it ever occur to you to track down the buyer? Oh, it would have been impossible. It was my parents out of yards. So oh, yeah. Impossible. Yeah. And I, I remember my father's like, well, you know, maybe a school wants it. Maybe it'll serve some good. And I'm like, come on, dad, it's obsolete junk. No one's going to want it. <laughs> you know? I was right at the time, but who knew? Yeah. When I went off to college, I quote unquote upgraded to a Macintosh, but I still kept the Apple II at home and I still have it. Well, aren't you? <laughs> I do have my original Atari, though. And right now I've got a I've got a nice GS here on my desk. One of the reasons I upgraded to a Mac was because I went to school to major in computer science and I couldn't cut it on an Apple II. What were you studying in college? I started out as an industrial design major and quickly realized I couldn't do the math and the physics requirements. I had the creative mind, but I didn't really have the mathematical mm-hmm. mind. And I made some friends in a student newspaper, did an English minor just for fun, and realized how much easier that was to coast by. So I guess I guess I was kind of lazy back then. So I ended up doing an English major and a minor in industrial tech, whereby with a minor, I only had to do the fun stuff like CAD and robotics and model design, and I didn't have to do the math and the physics. Mm. So I graduated with a bachelor's in English and a minor in industrial design. And what have you been doing with that since then? So I spent 16 years working for computer magazines. Ken, uh, your path and mine have crossed paths a few times. Yeah, you wrote an article for JuiceGS. I did, I did, but uh, yeah, I mostly wrote mostly for trade magazines, IT magazines, and I decided about six months ago to leave that field and just got a brand new job as a support engineer for a small voiceover IP company. Oh, now why the transition? We can thank our friend The Economy for that. Oh, I'm sorry. So is this not a welcome transition then? It was a transition. Still to be determined whether or not it's a profitable one, perhaps. I'll let you know. It <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you don't go into journalism for the same reason. No, that is true. I definitely found that out, and that's why I made my own transition last year from journalism into marketing. And then sometime in the early 2000s, I got interested in computer history, and I see myself more personally as a computer historian. As a subset of that, I got interested in collecting and uh, moved from Boston back to New Jersey in 2004 or five or so. A friend of mine down here and I formed March which is Mid-Atlantic Retro Computing Hobbyist. And all it was was a couple guys and said, hey, let's get together, have some brews, mess around with old computers. Fast forward nine years later, we have a bricks and mortar museum. I have 1,500 square feet of exhibit space, 7,000 square feet of storage space, multi-million dollar liability policy. <laughs> Probably, uh, with all due respect to our friends in Rhode Island, 
I think we have the largest and most the most comprehensive collection on the East Coast. We have dozens of members up and down the Eastern Seaboard. And then in 2006, we kind of inherited the rights to the VCF East from the guys in California who founded it. So our first one was 2000 was VCF East 3.0 starting in 2006. And that's how the name kind of carried forward from the from the old Boston show. So the event has pretty much followed you. You were living up in Boston, then you moved to New Jersey and brought VCF with you. Well, I wasn't running the Boston show, but the person in California had no one local on you know had no one on the ground in Boston to run it. At the same time as, as March down here in the Mid Atlantic was growing pretty rapidly, so it just made sense at the time for us to take it over. It's not that I took it with me; it just made sense to work out that way. When you say the folks on the West Coast, would that be Salam? Yes. You probably could have had a, with lowercase letters, a vintage computer festival without getting the rights to it, per se. So what is involved in becoming an official VCF? A big commitment. Not a big financial commitment, but you have to prove yourself worthy. You have to prove that you know how to run an event. And you have to, you know, it helps to apprentice at an existing VCF. That's what I did. And uh, you have to be able to get the venue. You have to be able to get the resources together. You have to be able to be, you know, honestly, a little bit of a drill sergeant. To the, to the public, you know, people say, oh, it's just one weekend. Well, for them, it's six months of part-time job for me, you know, every year. And you have to really marshal a lot of resources into the same direction. It's herding cats, but it's totally worth it when the show comes together. Every year at the show, you know, around the afternoon of the first day, some guy in his 40s or 50s will come up to me with a young child and, you know, darn near a tear in his eye and shake my hand and say, hey... I haven't seen this stuff in 30 years. My kid didn't believe me what it was like. <laughs> and that happens pretty much every year like clockwork. And I know it sounds corny, but it really makes it worth it. How has VCF East evolved over the years? More and more and more. <laughs> Just getting bigger and bigger? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first year we did it, I forget we had maybe, I don't know, 15, 16 exhibitors. This year we're looking at 35. The first year we did the East Coast show was one day. Now, this year, for the first time, it's going to be three days. More speakers, more celebrity speakers, hands-on workshops, consignment, museum tours, book sale we added, professional vendors, lots of great stuff. So how did VCF East get hooked up with the InfoAge Museum? Because that existed before VCF. That's an easy one. Well, it's a... Okay, I'll do my best to give you the short answer. The InfoAge Science Center, uh, all-volunteer grassroots science museum on the Jersey Shore, itself is a historic technological venue. It's a national historic landmark, as a matter of fact. And that formed in the early 2000s. March, my computer club, formed in 2004 or so. In 2005, March's first event that we did was an exhibition at the existing Trenton Computer Festival, which is a modern computer show, but it's 30 years old. In fact, it was the first computer show ever for the general public in 1976. So 2005 was their 30th anniversary, and we had some mutual friends. So they invited us there to do a demo of what it was like at their first show. And that was the first time a lot of people in March even met each other. So we dug out our Altairs and MSIs and whatnot, and we did a demo. And it was actually kind of poignant because it was almost like a dramatic reenactment of their 30, you know, 30 years ago. Same dorky looking guys, same computers, same primitive exhibits, but in color. <laughs> in fact, we saw black and white photos at our first show. And man, if you could have just taken black and white photos of us and it was the same thing, it was eerie. <laughs> anyway, we were at that show and the guys who ran that show introduced us to the local antique radio and TV collectors club. And those guys were already involved with InfoAge, and they said, oh, why don't you guys come check out this InfoAge place? So we did, and the 
founder of InfoAgents, a man named Fred Carl, invited us in and said, okay, you guys can be one of a dozen or so independent groups that sort of reside here. You could be the computer history wing, and we'll give you a collection to start with, and we'll give you a building and just do it. And we said, wow, what can possibly go wrong with that deal? <laughs> Turns out a museum is hard. And, you know, a lot of people in the vintage community field say, oh, uh, you know, I've got a museum. No, your basement, sir, is not a museum. Your private collection, your private building is not a mm-hmm. museum. We were literally given an existing collection to start with, and we were to curate, and we were given space. And so we just built exhibits. And I remember at that first Treadin show when most of us met each other, a bunch of us went to dinner at a local rib joint that night, and one person gave me 20 bucks and said, here, open a bank account. And I said, we're just a computer club. What do we need money for? <laughs> and now our annual budget is like in the five figures. A large fraction of our annual budget comes from that show, revenue from that show. So, so your inventory, March's inventory, does it reside at InfoAge year-round? Yes. We have email list of 400-plus people, but our March's core membership, you know, several dozen, maybe more than 100 core members spread out from, say, Hartford to Pittsburgh to D.C., mm-hmm. thereabout. And as it happens... Central Jersey is where I live and where this InfoAge facility lives. So we have 7,000 square feet there, and the March owned, you know, people donate stuff to us. We've never actually bought anything. So when we started, the stuff that InfoAge gave us to curate was all we had. Over the years, that has become a tiny fraction of what we have. And so the club just started accumulating things. And so now we have this vast collection of everything from 8 bit micros to S100 stuff to mini computers, to mainframes, and it resides in a secure facility, you know, one of the secure buildings at this InfoAge facility. And like any museum at any given time, a tiny percentage of that is on public display, and we constantly swap it out. And our goal is to get as much as possible up and running. At any given Sunday at our museum, we turn things on. We're not just a don't-touch museum. So it's a living computer museum like the one in Seattle. Yes. So do you bring more things out for VCF than is what usually on display? Yes. Well, during VCF, of course, in case any listeners aren't familiar, the main focus is in the mornings, the lectures, and the afternoon, the exhibit hall. At the exhibit hall is when the exhibitors bring their own stuff to exhibit. And then all throughout the day, we have museum tour- museum tours, consignment, sales, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the museum itself is down the hallway from the large rooms where VCF is held, so that's totally open, as are the other dozen or so museums at the InfoAge Center are also open during VCF. The Radio Museum, the Shipwreck Museum, the Hackerspace, et cetera, et cetera. Electronic Warfare, Marconi era, Marconi era exhibits, it goes on and on. But to answer your question, yes, we do bring out some other treasures that we wouldn't normally show during the year. Most notably, three or four years ago, we acquired a Univac. Ours is a 1219B. It's a transistor-era Univac from the mid-60s, meant for use on a battleship to control weapon systems. And it's about this, you know, all together, all the components, it's about the size of a Chevy Suburban or a Cadillac Escalade. It's quite a beast. We move it around with forklift pallets. It's been in storage for several years, but for the first time at VCF this spring, we're going to move those forklift pallets out into the public display. Ironically, the rule at VCF for the exhibitors is everything must be on and running. This is not, but it's my rule I get to break it. Nice. <laughs> but hey, I mean, you know what? How many, how often do you get to see a Univac, really? You know, so I totally see people taking selfies with it and stuff. We have one member who worked on this particular model when it was new. He's not sure if he can attend the VCF from where he lives, but if he does, he's going to give talks on it throughout the weekend. What would it take to get that machine up and running again? Well, we got it from the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. They were required by federal law to take the core memory out in case there was any data on it, which is ridiculous. So we need core for it, and we need software. 
We can certainly replace transistor assemblies and make the machine mechanically operate, but we'd have to either write software or get some. Well, and of course, it needs an unspeakable amount of electrical power to run a computer of that scale. What would it take? Time and money. Can it be done? Absolutely. But the first couple years of our existence, we focused on all the 8-bit stuff. We kind of mastered that, got most of those running. Then we started teaching ourselves the S100 stuff, got that down pretty much. Now a lot of us are focusing on the mini computers. We love our DEC and HP and Prime and Burroughs and everything else, Data General, etc. One day, if the stars align, we'll get the Univac running. Another computer that we just recently acquired that we're going to debut at VCF is we, uh, oh, I mentioned Univac. The Univac is one of three computers we have that is a transistor computer from the 1960s, the other two being an IBM 1130 and an original DEC PDP-8, the straight eight. We just recently got a, our first vacuum tube computer. We got our hands on a Bendix G15 from 1956. That most definitely will not be running, but its public grand debut will be at VCF as well. Now, Mike, you've been to a VCF, right? I went to, I don't know if it was the first or second VCF in San Francisco. was the one that they held at Moffett Field. That's before my time. My first one was VCF 6, 2003. This was, would have been 97 or 98. It was when I was just sort of making my way back to the Apple and computer collecting in general. Uh, I had a great time. It's, it's like no other event. What I tell people who are not computer people is if you think about an antique car show, because even people who are into computers maybe never heard of vintage computing or wouldn't understand why. And yet most people just drive from point A to point B. Most people are not car people, but they're aware that car people exist. And so most people know antique car shows exist, even if they're not personally into it. But at an antique car show, if you touch anything, the owners flip out on you. And if you ask for a test drive, just it's a ridiculous question. Yeah, right. At the VCF, the owners were required to have everything up and running. Imagine if you went to an antique car show and everyone wanted to give you a spin. That would be insane, but that's exactly what VCF is. Yeah, when I went, I was aware of what a unique experience this was, even for somebody who's into collecting computers, because a lot of people collect these things. Not a lot of people have the space or the money or the resources to get a hold of the things like the Bendix or, or a PDP, a straight eight or anything like that. So even for somebody who has collections and is used to being around this, these are still computers that I probably wouldn't ever get to see, let alone play with. And honestly, for, for most people, even an out there is something extremely exotic. I remember having a great time and coming home and wishing that there was one nearby me. Well, there are others. I mean, the, the California one is on hiatus. If anybody thinks they're qualified to run the California show, God help them. But if they are, they can contact me and I'll, I'll hear them out. But there's a Southwest show in Texas. There's a Southeast show in Atlanta. There's Midwest in Chicago. There's Europa in Munich, Germany every year. And there's been people who want to do Canada, Japan, South America, but they never, they never panned out. I think the closest one to me is uh, Midwest in Chicago, which reminds me, I, do you, are you in contact with any of the other VCFs? Yeah, we're sort of a lo loose, I mean, I run East, but we're sort of a loose contingent to people. Is, is VCF Midwest happening this year? I can't find any post or any information at all about it. The, the most recent stuff that I can find is like the wrap-up from last year. I have every reason to believe it will happen. Mike Lee and some of the other people from that show will definitely be at our show. What do you got on the agenda for a VCF East 9.1? Who are the headliners? Last time around, we had Dan Cocky. The keynote for Saturday is a guy named Paul Lazowitz. And Paul, until recently, uh, Paul spent about 15 years as the IBM corporate archivist. And he's going to talk to us about IBM and punch cards and the during the Social Security Administration birth in the 1930s. It's not something most collectors think about, but it should be very interesting. 
Also on the subject of not thumbing collectors think about, which should be interesting, on Sunday our keynoter is a guy named Maris Grabe. Maris was the founder and chairman in 1980 of the IEEE 802 Landman Committee. And if you think about it, you're like, oh, I guess that's computer history, right? So it's a little out there, but it's something. Most notably for your audience, Ken and Mike, we have a guy named Joel Shusterman. Joel was the founder of Franklin Corporation. He's going to give a talk. Also this year, one of our exhibitors is a guy named Bob Applegate. And Bob was one of the earliest and one of the senior most engineers of Franklin. And Bob's going to bring with him all sorts of prototypes and one-offs and never-release things from Franklin. He's even bringing the... He's donating to our museum, actually, from what I understand, the original lawsuit from Apple. Like the actual paperwork. And I haven't seen it yet. I'm hoping it's signed by Steve Jobs. That'd be pretty cool. We're we're going to get the actual paper lawsuit that Franklin received for our museum. So that should be fun. I hope that somebody scans it and puts a PDF online. We'll see what we can do. Will the sessions be available on video or on YouTube or something for, for those that can't make it? Maybe. We're trying to work out the logistics. You know, generally speaking, you know, we, the sessions are really the benefit of attending. We're about a decade behind in releasing sessions from past shows. So uh, we hope someday. But it's not something we've had the bandwidth to do in the past. But we know there's a demand for it. So we'll see if we can oblige that someday. Kansas Fest has found that publishing our keynotes and our sessions online has been a great marketing tool for the event. And I remember at one point when we were live streaming Kansas Fest, this was like around 2000 when we were back at Avila, there was some concern that why would anybody come to the event when they can watch it live right online? But as it turns out, watching it online, whether it's live or tape delayed, is just a taste of what it's like to actually be there. And people who see it online, they're like, wow, I wish I was there. And they end up do coming. So I appreciate how much bandwidth video editing takes now that I'm doing a lot more YouTube videos. It, it can just be exhausting. And I hope that somewhere along the line, VCF finds that bandwidth because it can be a great tool. I hope you're right. I mean, I, I, to be really honest, and I hope nobody kicks me for saying this, I'm torn left brain and right brain. I'm torn between the desire to see let's be open source and embrace the community and all that, and the desire to be mercenary and make as much money for our show as I possibly can. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know. We're, we're trying to work it out. Many voices inside one head. And it's not just my decision. There's lots of other people involved. In this well, you know, I mean, you can make the videos available, but they don't have to be for free. So that would, might be the best of both. Ways. Yes, duly noted. So a few Apple highlights of our show this year, to answer your earlier question, in no particular order. We've always had various replica ones and Mimeos at our show. There's a beautiful Mimeo in our museum signed by Dan Cocky. But this year, for the first time, someone's bringing an actual Apple one to our show. Hmm. It's the same one, the same person that brought it to VCF Midwest last year. Is that Christopher? Yes, Christopher. Christopher has asked that we don't use his last name for, for reasons of security. So, and of course, there'll be plenty of Apple IIs. There is an original Apple II in our museum, et cetera, et cetera. Both Vince Briel and Mike Willigal are offering hands-on workshops at our show. So if you have a desire to build a replica one, et cetera, you can do that at our show for a discount, I may add. And for those who haven't already experienced one of those workshops, I, I haven't been to one of Mike's, but Vince puts on outstanding hands-on workshops. It's, it's great. Not only do you get a discount on the kit, you get to build it under the tutelage of the person who designed it. Absolutely. Yep. Worth every penny. Be better, you know? And you get to build it in a group setting of other people building them and, you know, ask these other questions and stuff. Mike Willigal this year is also unveiling a Swift card at our show. Do you guys know what a Swift card is? 
I think we talked about it on a previous episode, but it's not one that I have hands-on experience with. It's a SWYFT. It's it's basically when Jeff Raskin, you know, after he was the father of the Mac, went out on his own from Apple. He had this idea of you know what the Mac should be, and that eventually became the Cat and Cat, of course. But in the meantime, he had the Swift car, which is basically almost the Cat and Cat, you know, serving as a card in your Apple II. And so Mike made a replica of that, or reproduction, I should say, and he'll offer that at VCF as a workshop as well. So that'll be a lot of fun. Nice. And uh, one more thing. I don't know if this exhibitor has signed up yet. They better, because tomorrow's a deadline. One of our members, a guy named Ian Premus, uh, P-R-I-M-U-S, who ironically is a big Prime fan, and his name is Premus, he designed, he just designed by hand, he homebrewed an Apple II sound card. And I think he's some one of, one of his friends is going to demo that in the exhibit hall. I met him at VCF back in 2011. I think he had a uh, Apple II, like, nine monitors hooked up simultaneously. Yes, yes, the Apple II Matrix, I do remember Yeah, that. that was him. And then one, one, year him, one year him and his buddy had a big exhibit of Apple II clones you never heard of, like Russian clones and all kinds of wild stuff. So those are the big Apple highlights at our show this year, is the real Apple One, the Franklin Lecture, the Mimeo and Brio Workshops, Ian's sound card. And uh, and also the Franklin exhibit, of course, of rarities and prototypes. So those are the big Apple highlights of our show this time. Excellent. So people who want to go to this event, do they need to register ahead of time? Being a uh, vintage computer show, we haven't yet got to that epoch in technology. Mm -hmm. We do, however, update cash. So no, you don't register ahead of time. You just show up. Cash is preferred. Now, I mentioned we're having a three-day show for the first time, guys. There was one particular member of our group who shall rename nameless. And every year he bugged me, bugged me, bugged me, hey, Evan, let's do a three-day show. And I said, no, 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 because usually, you know, by the afternoon of the second day, it's kind of dead. So I said, what's the point of doing a third day of the same thing? No one's going to take off of work to see it. Saturday and Sunday are enough. But he kept bugging me, so I said, okay, well, if we do a third day, let's do something different, something that's never been done before. And what we came up with was VCF East University. I, in a full family-friendly spirit of your show, I call it VCFU. <laughs> At VC, Vintage Computer Festival East University from here on out, I'll call it. <laughs> what it's going to be is, it's going to be Friday. It's going to be a separate admission from the main show. And it's going to be a whole day of nothing but technical classes. Two tracks, hardware and software, four classes each. You know, we serve you a pizza lunch in the middle with your ticket. And Tektronics, actually the founder of Tektronics, a guy named Howard Zolom, came out of the Army base that is now our facility back in the 50s or so. So Tektronics has donated to us a brand new oscilloscope worth about $1,500. And they're going to give it away at lunchtime on Friday at VCFU's University. So you pay a measly 20 bucks to get in Friday. You get eight technical classes. You get free pizza and a chance to win a brand new scope. Now, unlike at Kansas Fest, obviously the $20 is just a day admission. They're not spending the night getting meals or anything. Well, you're getting your free pizza Friday. But Saturday and Sunday, you know, we do have a food vendor, but, you know, it's, it's dirt cheap to get into the show. Yep. I mean, it's, it's like, I, I think, I, I don't have it in front of me. I think we said Friday is $20. Your choice, Saturday or Sunday, is 15 If you want Saturday and Sunday, it's 25 If you do all three, it's 40 Kids get in free Saturday and Sunday. And then the only thing extra is like food and, you know, the workshops obviously cost extra because you have to buy the kits, et cetera. Right. But for 40 bucks, you can get in all three days. Get a free pizza lunch Friday, get the classes, the lectures, the exhibits, and maybe go home with a brand new scope. <laughs> so it couldn't possibly, I mean, there's no better. Who could ask for anything more? So what other highlights do you have from VCF for us to look forward to? Not that you haven't already sold us already. Well, on Friday, I'll just quickly mention the classes. Classes are computer cosmetics, which is everything from retro bright to, you know, how to clean things up. Advanced basic, 
memory management, that sort of thing. Uh, assembly programming, CRT and video repair, oscilloscope odyssey, bootstrapping CPM, disk imaging, and homebrew hardware. The homebrew hardware one is being taught by Michael Holly, who was a member of the Homebrew Computer Club back in the day. And the one about uh, CRT and video repair is being taught by Bill Hurd of a company that competed against Apple starting with a C. I guess we don't mention them in the podcast, but they were in Pennsylvania, Commodore. And so just a couple other keynotes that are worth mentioning. Bill Cheswick of Bell Labs, talking about his you know pioneering in firewall technology. Mike Willigal, aforementioned Mike Willigal, will give a lecture on how to fix your hopelessly broken vintage computer. <laughs> Dave Haney, talk about Amiga. Zach Weddington, you may know, is making a documentary called Viva Amiga, and he's debuting it at our show. And probably, got, I'm sure you know Jason Scott, right? Of course. Uh, Jason Scott of the Internet Archive is talking about the Internet Archive software collection. There will be a Mac Repair, Classic Mac Repair 101 lecture. It's always fun. And 35 exhibits. I certainly can't mention them all, but if your listeners go to vintage.org and click through to VCF East 9.1, I think there's about 33, 34 exhibits up there now. We're going to have 35 by the time it's all said and done. And there's exhibits to appeal to everybody, everything from a VAX cluster to TRZ80 and everything in between. Now, you mentioned Viva Amigo. Who did you say that's by? Zach Weddington. Because I do remember his Kickstarter. That was almost three years ago now. He was reluctant to say the film will debut at our show because it may or not be finished, but he's calling it a first look. Yeah, he said that he filmed, see some names here, Bill Hurd, Andy Finkel, Jason Scott, R.J. Michael, music by Zoe Blade. I remember, I think I may have seen a teaser for it when I went to my own VCF East back in 2011. Jason Scott, Bill Hurd, and Dave Haney will all be there in person. Excellent. Wow, quite the reunion. So this is Vintage Computer Festival East 9.1 being held April 4th to the 6th, 2014 at the InfoAge Science Center in Wall Township, New Jersey. Thank you. We're at vintage.org and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash vcfeast. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. After everybody's recovered from attending VCF East 9.1, they can look forward to Kansas Fest, being held July 22nd to the 27th in Kansas City, Missouri. Back on February 17th, Mr. Peter Neubauer, the communications director for the Kansas Fest committee, posted a very mysterious, although not really, logo slash teaser to the interwebs. This was posted on A2 Central, on the Kansas Fest website, and on various social media groups. And it was simply the words Kansas Fest. It was the logo, presumably, for this year, like it always is, indicating what year it is, the dates that's being held, and the location. Except this year, the logo looks extremely different, deviating from the style that's been used the last seven years or so. This logo is in the style of the Soft Talk magazine. Who here used to read Soft Talk? Me. Soft Talk was not a magazine that I read a whole lot of. When I was at the newsstands, I would pick it up and browse through because what I really liked were the, the top ten lists. I always had fun seeing the top games and the applications and things like that, but it was it was not one that I bought regularly. Unfortunately, it predates my involvement in Apple II periodicals. It sounds extremely conceited to say the only Apple II magazine I've ever read re- uh, religiously is Juice GS, but it's true. Sorry. <laughs> so it didn't take long to figure out that this logo is in the style of soft talk. Peter pretty much confirmed it when he said that Tony Diaz, the committee chair, created a new font based on the soft talk font. People started thinking, well, the keynote speaker must be somebody associated with Softalk, and they confirmed a few days later that it would be Margot Comstock, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Softalk. That's a nice get. I think so. Now, Mike, you've had some interactions with Margot, haven't you? 
I have. I don't know if she was the group's originator or not, but she's an active member of the Soft Talk Forever group on Facebook. And many, many Apple II fans and celebrities are as well. And uh, I've exchanged some messages with her. She seems um, very nice and likes to talk. And so I think she'll be great in front of the microphone. And I imagine she's got some great stories to tell. Yeah, I'm sure you can count on that. You know, at VCF, we had Dave Hall a few times in creative computing. Mm-hmm. And uh, generally, the magazine guys, you know, they were there. They have a lot of inside dirt over the years and funny stories. Um, to, you know, they, they, I'm, I'm sure she'll do a great job. The one that I want to hear is, is I guess she won a bunch of money on a game show. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. But then she used the money that she won, the winnings, to start Soft Talk. Oh, I, I remember reading about that. It was like the $64,000 pyramid or something. Yeah, something like that. She came home, I, I think it was like ten dollars or $15,000, which, you know, in, in 1980 is a lot of money. I'm sorry, it was Password. Yeah, what a great way to start a magazine. I mean, if I want a ton of money, I know what I would do is make JuiceGS bigger. Of course you would. <laughs> interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, the uh, Soft Talk is one of the few Apple II magazines that really hasn't had much of an effort put into to turning the paper copies into PDFs and scanning and preserving and and I figured out why that's true. I talked to Margot on Facebook and, and asked her if she'd be okay with, with me scanning and posting it. And we went back and forth a little bit. And uh, she she agreed. And, and I, I attempted to scan one of their later issues. And the, the magazine is like, I think it was over 400 pages. And every single one of them is in color. So in addition to scanning all of those, I'm, I'm one of those guys where I kind of want it to be as perfect as possible, which means like, color matching the, the cast across the pages. And if you're scanning at 600 DPI and they're full color, you need a small hard drive for, for each issue. <laughs> and it took a long time. Uh, so, and, and fortunately, I, there were only 48 uh, issues. So I think it will get done probably sooner than later, but it's not going to be me. So is she the one to give the rights to have those posted online? Uh, she said she was. Makes sense to me. I mean, it's not like Insider A Plus, which was being published by IDG, a much larger publishing company. It was Al Tomervik who was the publisher, right? Right. Al Tomervik was her partner, and I guess they were even married for a while. Yeah, so between the two of them, I mean, if, if they can agree to get the PDFs posted, then I don't see who would stop them. It's been a while since we've had somebody from the periodical world as a keynote speaker. Of course, we had Mr. David Satella. I think that was back in 2007. And that was, in my opinion, like one of the first heavy hitters that we started getting from there, we got Bob Bishop, Randy Wigginton, John Romero, a lot of great names. And I think Margot just goes great into that lineup. And then there was, a, there was a Steve somebody or another. Oh, that was way back in 03. We almost forgot about him. Actually, I'm looking at the uh, list of keynote speakers that we've had at Kansas Fest. And assuming I am reading Wikipedia correctly, in the 26 years of the event, this is the first woman keynote speaker we've had. I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, it's great that we're having a woman, but 25 years or whatever without. And My first thought when I realized that was it's about freaking time. So I was I was talking briefly about scanning and, and how difficult it was for me because it took me almost a month to get that thing done of hours of work on it. And, I, and while I was proud of it, uh, I was also burned out after just one issue. Fortunately, there's a, another guy out there now that seems to have a lot more, mm, I'll say, energy for this sort of thing and enthusiasm. Jim Sammons is... He has started the Soft Talk Apple project. It's uh, softtalkapple.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. His webpage is subtitled A Living History of Early Apple Microcomputing. 
and he has taken it upon himself to organize people, uh, organize people in the community to not only get in on the scanning fun, but to contribute memories and things like that, their favorite memories of soft talk. And he was also, I guess, the director of advertising or something. So he was actually an employee of soft talk. So it, it sort of fits that he would do this. And I think that's really cool to see. Yeah, it's nice to know that somebody who was involved with the project, with the magazine, back when it was still in print, and someone who has that close connection. I didn't see his name pop up when I went to the Wikipedia page for Soft Talk, but doing a Google search of Jim Salmon Soft Talk brings up a page about the original wizardry. Jim Salmon apparently conducted an interview back in 1982 with some of the gentlemen at Sir Tech, which was the developer of Wizardry. It looks like he had some input into editorial as well at Soft Talk. Oh, and you were also wondering if Margot started the Facebook group. And the group was actually started by a gentleman named Anthony Chang on Facebook. And I have no idea who he is. He does not have any friends in common with me, and I have a lot of Apple II friends on Facebook. He's following Waz, so he's definitely interested in the Apple II. But the only thing I can see about him is that he follows Waz and is a member of Soft Talk Forever. And he's the group administrator. He's the only administrator of the group. So if he wanted to shut it down tomorrow, he could. But I assume he doesn't because he's the one who started the group. I'm sure if we went back through the Soft Talk Forever archives on Facebook, we could probably find something he posted. But Facebook is not easy to search, as has been discussed. We had that conversation at the uh, end-of-year roundtable that we did on this podcast, and... David Schmidt commented that social media is not good for archiving pretty much anything. That one in particular, it's difficult to get information out of. I have a, another podcast that I do, and, and we do have a Facebook page for that. People submit comments and questions, and, and there's some lively conversation going on there, and it's fun, but it's hard to extract the information that so that we can contribute that to the next show right. from Facebook. Exactly. And my bad, Anthony's actually been active on the Soft Talk Forever group as recently as this week. Excellent. Well, I'm going to be at Kansas Fest. Evan, will we ever get you there? If I ever have the dough, <laughs> uh, I'd, sure love to, I'd sure love to. I've heard nothing but, nothing but wonderful things about it. If I ever have the spare money, I'll go in a heartbeat. Oh, come on. You were just saying that VCS budget is in the five digits. You can spare a few hundred. It's not my money. It's the club's budget. They're sending you as an ambassador, a goodwill ambassador. If you can talk my treasurer into it, I'll go. I understand. VCS money is for VCF. I'm just kidding. Just to be clear, the money, I mean, I joked about our budget. That is the, that is March's annual budget of which VCF, you know, proceeds from VCF go to March. It's not, not the VCF budget. And as far as I know, Kansas Fest doesn't have a budget. I think it's just hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck. They charge the amount that they need to to cover their expenses, and that's it. You know, we, we, would, we would love to do that, but again, the VCF is you know, primary fundraiser for our group, so we have no choice but to be a, as mercenary as we are. It's, like I said, it's still a dirt cheap. I was going to say, I don't think someone who charges 10 bucks a day can really call themselves mercenary. Well, it's 15 this year. Um, oh, my God. You're such mercenaries. <laughs> who can afford that? Come on. I know. I mean, you were just saying how bad the economy is, and there you go, raising your prices 50%. You know what, though? You, you know, we go to Maker Fair every year. We go to Hope in New York City, and, you know, fantastic professional events, but you're shelling out to like buy a baseball ticket. I mean, they're, they're, they're a lot of money. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I don't go to professional sporting events. Gee whiz. Let's see. Let's move on. There's been some other amazing, huge, ginormous news in the Apple II community, and it's been a long time coming. Finally, the Apple II Pie card from Mr. David Schmenk is available and for sale from ultimateapple2.com by Mr. Anthony J. Martino. Yay! 
We reviewed this product, or actually previewed it, way back in Juice Yes, December 2013. Mr. Martin Hay gave it a glowing review, with some caveats, of course. No product is perfect. But this was just a tease until everybody could get their hands on it, and now they can. Now, is this just a site selling it, or is this a site of the person who made it? Anthony Martino is the merchant, and David Schmenk is the developer. So there will be a link to both David's page about the Apple II Pie card, as well as the Ultimate Apple II product listing in the Zen Cart store that they're using. He's working now on the Apple III Pie, which is a an Apple III-specific version of the Pie card. Holy crap, I had no idea. Is that a scoop, or has he been open about this? Uh, he's mentioned it, I think... In passing, either in, in Comstas Apple II or on Facebook. The uh, Apple II Pie card that's currently out is revision 4.4. I honestly don't remember if there was a revision associated with the one reviewed in Juice GS. Mike, you want to clue us in a little bit as to exactly what this does? Because I know we published the review, but I haven't actually gotten to use one. So the Apple II Pie card is a an interface card that goes in any... I think it'll work in any of the... Apple, standard Apple II slots provides a link, the Apple II serial interface to a Raspberry Pi card. And it has a few little extra features that's oversimplifying it, but at a, a very high, simple level, that's what it is. I mean, you could go out and, in fact, build your own cable and a little circuit board and create your own and then plug it directly into the Apple, like a super serial card and, and not deal with an extra card. But David's card has some extras that you wouldn't get that way. So. It's been sort of a wonderful coincidence or a wonderful moment of serendipity that we happen to have Ivan. Um, I keep wanting to call him Ivan X, but it's Ivan Drucker. He's a, a wonderful, intelligent, amazing Apple II developer. He's been working on <laughs> a set of programs called uh, Apple II Server and um, Apple II Cloud. And we've talked about these before, but they install nicely right into this the Apple II Pi setup, combo setup. And so basically you have a little almost like a cloud server uh, plugged directly into your Apple II. And it's free. Well, not the card, but but Ivan's programs are free. Wow, that is an amazing combination. It's free for $60. The card is $60, and that actually is a pretty darn good price for an Apple II expansion card nowadays. I mean, I think the CFFA 3000 starts at, is it 100 uh, it's 100 it's 150 for the CFFA 3000. The, the older ones were $100. And worth every penny. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The design on the card, the Apple II Pi card is fairly simple and so I don't think it's too difficult to to make a make a handful of them and so I don't think David wanted to charge a lot of money for them. I think I read in JuiceGS that this card uh, the functionality can be replicated to a degree with a super serial card and an Apple Pi. I mean, I'm sorry, Raspberry Pi? Yeah. If you want to, you can wire up your own custom cable and plug it directly, plug a Raspberry Pi directly into the, uh, in the super serial card and get the same, sort of the same functionality. Uh, David has added a few things on the Apple to Pi card that you wouldn't get that way. So, but it is possible to, to do it your own way. And I think David said he is said he has or is going to put the plans out online so you could make your own if you wanted to to go that way. Does that mean that if you needed a super serial card for your Apple II, you could buy an Apple II Pi? Does it work both ways? No, it no it doesn't. Oh, okay. That's a very good question. And this his card just provides an interface to the existing uh 6551, I think, uh serial interface which is compatible with the Apple II's serial bus. Gotcha. Evan, do you have any experience with the Raspberry Pi? Uh, I've seen one. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I don't have any experience. No, it makes me wish I was younger and had more energy to learn these things. My favorite toys as a kid were my Legos and my Apple II, and now they have Lego Mindstorms. You know, I, if, I, if I had gotten a chance to combine those things when I was a kid, I would have been so happy. My brain would have exploded. <laughs> 
So I've never personally done any any Arduino or Arduino. I haven't personally had a chance to experience that. Maybe somebody should make an Apple II interface to like a MakerBot or something. Ooh. We were talking about the, the nice little price of David's card. The Raspberry Pi card is only 35 bucks, so you can get all of this for you know under $100. I think I was the only person at Kansas Fest 2013 without a Raspberry Pi. Aw. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not sure I would know what to do with one, but... Well, the, 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 that's my thing, Ken. I mean, I understand what's cool about them, and whether it's Arduino or Pi, whatever. I, I get what's cool about them, but I have no idea what I would do with them. Mm-hmm. Except, I mean, yeah, play with it, but I, I need more than that. I, I don't know what I would do with it. Well, them. that's kind of like me. I have a replica one, one of Vince Briel's Apple One clones, and I don't use it as much as I thought I would. It was a lot of fun to build, and I... Exactly. And I, me too. You know, I yeah. value my purchase of it, and I show it off. Actually, that's probably the most use I get out of it is using it as a prop. I bring it into the class I teach at Emerson College every semester because I start the semester with a brief history of computers. And I say, this is what computers would look like in the 70s. What's missing? Well, a power supply, a keyboard, a monitor, <laughs> a mouse, pretty much everything. But, you know, back then that stuff wasn't missing. This is just what you got. I had a blast building my replica one, and my, my personal collection is focused mostly on portable computers. So I built a replica one, and I custom built a NICAD battery pack, and I hollowed out the case from an old MacBook, and I made a, I call it the portable one. Mm-hmm. I built a little Apple One laptop because I could, and it was fun to build it, but it's like, okay, well, now what? <laughs> you know. Although I do have, I recently, a few months ago, they finally tore the BlackBerry out of my cold dead hands, and I got myself a Samsung Galaxy Note 3. And the first app I got was the Apple One emulator. Excellent. Just because just because it was there. I think the Raspberry Pi probably is is more beneficial to somebody who's creative from an, an engineering and design standpoint than somebody like me who tends to be more of an end user of stuff. Because I, I imagine if you gave one of these things to Jerry Ellsworth, she would come up with endless cool ideas and do every one of them. So. <laughs> Well, you, you can give a toothpick and a bottle of a stick of gum to Jerry, and she come up with something exactly. Incredible. But the, you know, the, one of the one of the dozen or so groups that resides at the Infowage Center beside mine is a hackerspace, and every Monday night they have microcontroller Mondays, and people come out of the woodwork and they do whatever it is they do, but they seem very busy, so they're doing something right. I've seen a couple of web pages out there uh, for the Pi where, and for for any of these little do-it-yourself computers, there's the what the Beagleone and um, the propeller and a couple of others where it's just like people just list ideas of stuff that they think would be cool to see, but either they don't have time or they don't have the energy or whatever to do it themselves. And so if you're not somebody who can think of, hey, what should I do with this? And you're looking for a good project, but you're willing to do the work once you have the idea, troll through some of those forums and those lists, and there's some good stuff in there. The craziest thing I saw is in my new job at this small voice over IP company I work at, we do Elastics which is asterisk plus lots of other components. And Elastics, of course, is meant to run on a serious industrial-grade rack server. And somebody made Elastics Pi because they could. You're not going to run a corporate IP PBX on a Raspberry Pi. Right. You know, but someone did it because it, they could. It's like, well, what do you do with that? You know, who's going to run their corporate phones? That phones about a pro- you, go to, you go to the hackerspace and you brag and say, see what I did? Exactly. Exactly. So, Evan, I, I know you don't have your original Apple II anymore, having sold it when you went to college, but do you have an Apple II? I have a GS, and I am lusting for... Maybe you guys can help me with this. Okay. So the one I had as a kid was it was 
either an enhanced, I think it was a platinum. It was a platinum. Now, I don't know, this is going to sound really stupid. I don't know if this only existed in my head or if I actually had it or even if it did ever exist. As I understand it, there were two versions of the Apple IIe Platinum. The first version had the Numera keypad, but it was still the same shade of Apple Brown. The second version was actually that grayish color, the same color as like the keys from an Apple Lisa, you know, for, 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 from like a uh, like like a later Mac keyboard or a GS keyboard. And that's the one I lusted after as a kid because I had the original Platinum, which is just, you know, the key, numeric keypad, but the original brown color. I lusted after the one that was actually the gray color. I don't know why. I just liked it. Now, I've been looking for one for five years, and I can't find one. I met several people who said they had one, but what I saw in person was always the tannish brownish one. So I'm not sure now if this gray one is a mythical unicorn that only exists in my head or if it ever actually existed and is out there. I found several people who said, oh, no, no, I've got the Platinum, I've got that version. But when push came to shove, I was this close to buying one, and they showed up, and it was brown, not gray, and I was so disappointed. I've met a million people who are hardcore Apple II people, and they insist it was one Platinum, but I know there was another one. A couple years ago, I started shopping for an Apple II because I wanted to get the exact setup I had as a kid, and I almost got it because the duo this and the quality, and I went, but then I realized, wait a minute, I remember, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was 10 years old. And the Tui was my brother's bar mitzvah gift or something. I remember being in the store, a place called Hammett Computer Center in East Brunswick, New Jersey. Back, you know, buying a computer back then was like buying a car. It was a big purchase, lots of paperwork and stuff. So I remember my parents doing that. And the, guy, the salesman was like, hey, kid, check this out. And he showed us what I now know was an original Mac. And the mouse was like, wow, this is cool. So we told our parents, never mind Apple II, we want that. And they said, no, 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 we can't afford that. So we got the Apple II, but in retrospect, I'm glad we got the II instead. Because if we had gotten the Mac, I wouldn't have come home, come home from school and done more basic. Whereas the Apple II, I came home, booted up, and there was basic. So I'm glad we got the Apple II after all. Well, you know, Evan, on last month's episode of Open Apple, Sean Fay talked about how he's going to have a ton of Apple II hardware for sale and to give away at Kansas Fest over the next few years. If you were to come, you might be able to get exactly what you're looking for. <laughs> wow, what a sales pitch. You're not even on the committee anymore. No, but I'm still an Apple II evangelist. And even the pictures I've seen of the Snow White one, the pictures never did it justice for what I remember in my head. And had that real soft keyboard I remember. I've Googled, you know, Google Image Search. I have yet to find a picture that really does it justice. Evan, another question I meant to ask you during the user login. Ten years ago or so, before you and I ever met in person, if I, if I needed my memory jogged as to who you were, I had friends online who would refer to you as the calculator guy. So what's up with that? Okay. The first thing I collected was vintage handheld computers. And the way I got into that was by accident. I was working for eWeek magazine, the former PC Week up there in Boston. I read a lot of you know technology history books, and I, I enjoyed reading technology history books. I always have since I was a child. And I wanted to write one. I said, you know, that'd be good for my career to write such a book. But I didn't know what the subject would be. And I was in a Barnes & Noble with a friend who was doodling something on his Palm Pilot. And I said, hey, I pointed at that. I said, yeah, I wonder where, wonder where those came from. You know, where did PDAs come from? And he said, oh, well, the Apple Newton. I said, oh, okay. And I just accepted it. And I, I started wondering when I got home that night, I started Googling or Yahooing as it was back then, and uh, realized there were a lot of other little handheld pocket computers. <laughs> and so after a year or two, I, I became passionate trying to like track down, you know, where these came from. And I found out there were 15 years of handheld pocket computers before Apple coined the term PDA. And it's funny because if you, you know, 1920s, there were paddle trucks. 
the 1950s, there were, you know, Land Cruisers. 1970s, there were Broncos. And then the 90s, somebody invented the SUV, you know, which is ridiculous. And I remember giving a lecture to the Boston PDA user group, which is very much was having, you know, Newton, Newton militants at the time. And I dare to say there were 15 years of PDAs before Apple Coin invented the PDA, and they almost threw me out of the damn room. I started collecting some of these as a subset of studying them because I was going to write a book. I figured that there was a book in the history of PDAs, and I eventually realized that was one chapter in a larger book about the history of portable computing from the abacus to the tablet, which I'm currently writing. But that's how I got the reputation as the calculator guy because a lot of people didn't realize these were, you know, full-fledged computers, not just calculators. And I remember being at that Boston event, uh, Burlington Mass at Sun Micro, VCF East 2.0 in 2004. And I remember, I forget who, but I remember one of those guys at that show came up to me. He said, hey, you got a calculator? And, of course, it was funny because I had a table of 20 with me that are all calculators and handheld computers and stuff. I just did a quick Google search, and I found the Boston PDA user group. They meet the yes. second and fourth Tuesday of every month right at MIT. Boss Pedog, as they're known up there. So this is the group that you were speaking to? Yeah, and I dare to mention that not not only not only did Apple not invent the PDA, that there were 15 years of handheld electronic organizers on the market, and what the, what the reaction was was well, those weren't real PDAs. Well, why not? You know, well, be, and 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 I said, well, why not? And the response was a, a laundry list of arbitrary features that the Newton happened to have. <laughs> and they said, well, it doesn't have these features, so therefore it's not a real. It was ridiculous. But I clearly touched a nerve with them. And it made me, that was the first time I ever learned a lesson a hard way that first and history are dangerous words when using combination. Yes. Yes, it is very difficult. So to now, now when I'm writing my book and giving lectures and whatnot, which I do all the time nowadays, I refer to, you know, first generation, or I'd say an early example of, et cetera, et cetera. I avoid first at all costs, because anything you think is first isn't, basically. That's a good CYA policy you have there. Yes. Following up on a topic from last month, a popular Apple II game, Silver and Castle, which was updated for the first time in many years, has another new version coming out, and that is, at the very least, to correct a bug. Programmer Jeff Fink has identified that if you have updated your Silver and Castle from version 9.4 to version 9.5, it may not actually work. It's just a small bug that he's going to correct in version 9.6. He says that if you are updating from an earlier version of Silver and Castle, like 9.3, or if you were installing 9.5 from scratch, then you're fine. This only affects people updating from 9.4. So it's just a small bug, but it is a game breaker, and he will be fixing it soon. So you won't have to wait another four years for the next version of Silver and Castle. I'm actually not familiar with that game. It is a game that was originally sold to SoftDisk, and they never published it. So years later, programmer Jeff Fink assumed the rights to his original program and started re- updating it. He released version 1.0, I'm going to guess off the top of my head, around the summer of 2000, because that's roughly when I reviewed it for Juice GS, which was my first time writing for that publication. He wrote this game because there was a challenge back in the day that said that a program like Wizardry could not be done in AppleSoft Basic, and he basically said bullcrap. So he went and wrote Silver and Castle in Basic, and parts of it are now written, I believe, in other languages to speed it up because it's become such a comprehensive program. It's a very multifaceted game that you can play, this RPG but it's something that he's been maintaining for the last 14 years, releasing updates to it. It's up to version 9.6. And just last month, Sean was telling us that whenever he has time to kill, even after all these years, he'll still sit down and play Silver and Castle for an hour or two and just form an adventuring 
party and delve into the dungeon. My, my favorite Apple II game was Swashbuckler. I played, used to play a couple from school, play that for hours and hours and hours. But I remember my parents had a friend a few blocks away whose adult daughter worked for Epics. So I used to get pre-release copies of all the Olympic stuff. Nice. All the summer games, winter games, and lots of other games, too. I used to get pre-release copies and like demo stuff of all that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I remember when the Olympics being held every four years meant new Olympic games coming out for the Apple II. And and now yeah. that doesn't happen. I mean, I, I guess there were some Winter Olympics held in Russia recently, but it just it wasn't on my <laughs> radar, really. And the first game I ever, probably the most popular program I used was Copy2+. Plus. And first first program I ever pirated was Newsroom. Oh, I remember that. I remember my older brother was an editor for the school paper, and he brought that home one day because the school was... As was as was I. And I remember my, my buddy down the street, a kid named Ross Fails. Ross, if you're out there, <laughs> you doing? And I remember his dad had a copy of Newsroom for some reason, so I went over to his house, and Ross also had an Apple II, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can copy it. And I, I didn't know what I was doing, you know? And we thought that we damaged the original copy at one point, like swapping disc back and forth. I might have messed up. And Ross was freaking out. My dad's going to kill me. We're not friends anymore. Blah, blah. You know, luckily we, we got away with it, but that was pretty much the end of our friendship. It's not just updates that we have to celebrate this month. We also have a new program from Crew. He has released Stitch, a four-channel, one-bit music tracker for the Apple II. Now, I am not much for the uh, musical realm. We should probably get Seth Sternberger on the show sometime to talk about that, or his wife, Michelle. Anybody here know exactly what a four-channel, one-bit music tracker might do for us? I don't, but I mentioned earlier, PCF, someone's going to debut an Apple II sound card. Maybe if we get those guys together, we can do something interesting together. Well, you know what? I am going to mount this disc image as we are speaking. Okay, I am now running Stitch as we speak. It sounds like by the name of it, maybe it's some sort of a sound editor. Well, it's at version 0.0, according to the boot screen. And you can change the notes, duration, row, and range. So yeah, it does look like a music editor. I wasn't sure if that's what he meant by music tracker. But you can create, open, and save songs. I haven't run 8-Bit Weapons and Michael J. Mann's DMS Drummer software, so I don't really know how it compares. Mike, we should put on our agenda for a future episode to get some sound people on here. Well, you know who you should find? I remember when I was a kid, we had a program named called SAM, Software Automated Math. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, and you could type in anything, and you could change the pitch and you know all, all that stuff. I'm not really a music person or in the right terms. But you could t- it was just called SAM, Software Automated Math, and you can get it for the Apple II and type in anything you want and make it sound like anything or anybody you wanted. And it was, I, don't, I have no idea who made it, but it was really cool. Huh. I think there was also some sort of a music tracker program for the Apple II published by Scholastic Microzine. I seem to remember playing with that. Yeah, I, I had something like that. I remember bringing home from sheet music from music class one day and had some kind of program where I, I almost said app. I guess that wouldn't be the right term to use contextually. And I remember having some kind of program where you can like click on the musical symbol and drag it onto your onto your you know the, the line paper on the screen, and it would try to make the music. I'm not sure I remember that because the program... Well, I shouldn't say drag. There was no drag in that, but you know what I mean. Well, the, yeah, the program I was using, I don't think it used the mouse at all. I think all the Scholastic... No, we, I, we, we, didn't, we didn't have a mouse. <laughs> My family was so poor. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Speaking of audio video, Mike, I think you mentioned that you found on YouTube some Apple II videos or tours or something of the sort. I was trolling the old YouTubes the other day since we were talking about AV stuff and Apple II, and I found... 
I found a user, mspysu79. He's got a ton of electronic, just general electronic videos and, and like their repair videos and how to and things like that. And what caught my eye first was that he had several like Apple three videos. He, he recapped an entire Apple three motherboard. And, and so that kind of caught my attention, but in here, there was also an Apple two GS unboxing, which I thought was a lot of fun. And the, the video is not called anything related to the Apple two GS. So it, it didn't show up in any of my searches, but I thought I would point out his page because even if you're, well, I guess you wouldn't be listening if you weren't a huge Apple II fan, but if you're into other things as well, he's got a lot of neat stuff there. I guess I'm out of touch here. Um, I have read lately that unboxing videos are, are you know, the latest thing. So is there a whole subset of vintage computer unboxing videos out there? I think with, with the Apple II anyway, it started when that, that guy bought, he spent $2,600 for a an Apple IIc that was still sealed in box from the factory and then opened it and, and videoed it and put it on YouTube. And that sort of kicked it off at least. Yeah, that was Dan Budiak, but I think he photographed it and put it on Flickr. Oh, did he? I thought he did yeah. a video. Huh, okay. This is not sealed from the factory, but one of the neat items in the March collection, a few months ago we acquired an Apple III Plus. Nice. And it's in a box, which I haven't opened yet, so I don't really know what it's like inside. I don't know what, I don't know what kind of condition it's in. But we have an Apple III in a box, so maybe one day I should open it and film it and see what happens. The, the threes and three pluses are, are fairly uncommon, at least when you're looking at like other Apple II eight bit or other Apple eight bit computers. But the boxes definitely you don't see those very often. Let me ask you a question: I, Did it come in one of those nice white Apple boxes? Because the one we have is just in a cardboard box; it's not like an Apple. Oh, okay. Box. Yeah, they came in sort of the sort of an off white at the time. They probably mostly yellowed to more of a brownish, but they had that. Yeah, you know, I, I remember, in fact, a few months ago, I was at my dad's house, and my dad doesn't know which end of the disk drive to hold. I was at my dad's house looking through his, his helping clean up his, his workbench, and in the corner of the workbench, something caught my eye. I didn't quite know why. And he had a, a coffee can of wire nuts and a coffee can of screws, et cetera, et cetera. And in the corner, with a Sharpie labeled like, you know, cable wire or something, was a Unidisc box. <laughs> And it must have been, I guess it must have been mine as a child. And how it got in my dad's garage, the whole cable wires, I don't know. But I had to laugh and I had to explain to him why. It was funny. <laughs> the Apple III boxes had that, you know, sort of light gray pinstripe graph papers pattern on it and said, you know, Apple III. Okay, yeah, I know what you mean. Now, as far as I know, the one we have is just in a cardboard box. But maybe there's an Apple box inside of it. Who knows? Maybe so. So anyway, yeah, the, his his 2GS unboxing video is simply called Wednesday Afternoon Unboxing. It's only had... 43 views since it was posted about a year ago. That's probably because he didn't reference Apple or Apple II GS or anything like that at all. Like I said, he's got some other neat videos there too. Definitely worth checking out. One question I have is there are lots of Apple II software videos online. There's a gentleman, I think his name is High Lord Retro Gamer that we've mentioned before, and he basically shot videos of every Apple II game that's ever existed. Wow. I Presumably through emulation. I don't think he tracked down all the floppies. So it's easy to do a screen capture of emulation, and it's easy to point a camera at a monitor if you want to get the actual hardware. Are many people doing direct video capture? I mean, I, I've never hooked up the audio or video out on my Apple II to anything other than a monitor and a microphone. Is that commonly done? I don't recall seeing much of that. I, the, the Apple 8-bit line was had the standard composite video out, so it shouldn't be that hard to convert it to a modern cap capture device. I just I don't recall seeing that. 
Now, if you wanted like the 2GS's RGB for the, the higher resolution or the, especially the Apple III's got that weird digital X RGB that's not compatible with anything, then, then that would probably be more of a challenge. So. The reason I ask is because John Coe, who lives in Australia, was asking me if my Elgato Game Capture HD, which I use for all my Wii U gameplay videos, works on the Apple II. And as it turns out, it does. And I was able to use it this past week to do a Let's Play video of an Apple II game. Oh, neat. Yeah, so I'm going to be uploading that soon. Can't wait. Moving on to the next topic, which is a whole bunch of Steve Jobs news items. Yay! Hooray. We can never have enough Steve Jobs, right? I came across this news story recently. There have been a couple of pieces lately about, hey, guess what happened back in 1977? Like, Steve Jobs was talking about launching retail stores, and he didn't. Well, another thing that happened in 1977 was that there was a Dr. Diamond, Dr. George Diamond, at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where he was studying statistical methods to improve the diagnosis of heart disease. I'm quoting from a Forbes.com article here. And he... uh was doing this on his Apple II, and he pitched to Steve Jobs, picked up the phone and called Apple, and Steve Jobs said, yeah, fly on up here, we'll talk about it. So he did. Dr. Diamond said to Steve Jobs, I think that with a program like mine, this could be the beginning of getting your computer into every hospital and onto every doctor's desk out there. And Steve Jobs basically said, you know, I love what you're doing, but this is a distraction for me right now. I, I'm working on making the best computer I can, and your software is just distracting me. So I can't be involved with this. Goodbye. I heard a similar story to that. I mentioned one of my, an area where I consider myself an expert anyway, is the history of handheld computers. I forget the exact year, 77, 78, 78 or so. There were a couple of undergrads at New York University in Manhattan. One of them, his uncle or something, was the guy who ran Rolodex. One of them was an engineering major of some sort. And for a summer project, the uncle had the kids see if he could take a microchip and make some sort of electronic Rolodex. And much to his surprise, the kid did. <laughs> and the kid showed it to Steve Jobs. I don't remember if it was like a West Coast computer fair or it was one of those events. Jobs just blew him off, focusing on the brand new Apple II. And I interviewed this guy many, many years later, a few years ago, I should say. And he pointed out that had Steve Jobs opened his ears instead of his mouth, Apple could have had the Newton. 15, you know, Apple could have been at the forefront of PDAs after all, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the ironic part. Apple, my research showed Apple was far 15 years from the forefront of handheld computers. Had one little thing gone differently, they could have been at the forefront like they claim to have been. <laughs> so I think that's a neat little story. That is interesting because in Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, I read about how early on in his return as ICEO, he was walking around the Apple campus and he saw this job applicant who had just bombed his interview, just sitting there, and Steve Jobs sat down with him and the interviewee pulls out his laptop and says, you know, I, I wish I'd had the opportunity to show off this neat idea I had, how you can fit more icons into the tray by making them get bigger when you mouse over them, and they get smaller when you don't. And Steve Jobs said, that's amazing, you're hired. And that's now how the OSX dock works. That was one time when Steve Jobs, you know, he was paying attention to these small ideas that made a big change from the, from the unlikeliest of sources. I thought you were going to say he told the kid he's stupid, and then five years later had the idea himself. <laughs> realized, he sounds like, well, I, mean, I never met him, but he sounds like the kind of guy who would blow off your idea until he had it, and then it was brilliant. Well, I mean, isn't that what he did with Xerox? No, they paid Xerox a lot of money for access to to uh, technology. Did they actually pay for like the rights of the patent, though, or did they just pay to take a tour around the building? 
No, they they paid to be able to use the technology that they were shown. Oh, okay. It was a million dollars in stock and some other stuff. Apple, in exchange for that, got access to the, the equipment, to their engineers, and the right to integrate it into an upcoming computer. I always remember that that story is more complicated than people make it out to be, but I always forget the details. Well, it's it's easy just to say, they oh, they stole it. Right. You know, that's the easy most, most people know the Apple side of the story. For the Xerox side, I highly recommend a book called Dealers of Lightning. Yeah, good book. By good uh, book. Michael Hiltzik, mm-hmm. H-I-L-T-Z-I-K, who at the time, I think he was a Wall Street Journal reporter. And that's uh, the Xerox side of the story. It's very interesting as well. Wow. You both highly recommend this, and I've never even heard of it. Yeah, great book. If I recall, the book starts out a little bit slow. Give it a chance. The first couple of chapters were all about how Xerox, the business side of why they found a park and all. The business side is pretty boring. Give it a chance, though. Get through the first couple of chapters, and then it dies into hardcore park tech, and it gets fascinating after that. Huh. Thanks for the heads up. A link to that book will be in the show notes. Now, we've seen a lot of, I guess I would call it unique pieces of art based on various images of Steve Jobs. Most commonly, it's the one where he's got his thumb thoughtfully to his chin, and he's sort of staring deep into your soul. And... <laughs> oh, I hate that picture. <laughs> yep. In fact, I've got the Steve Jobs, I've got the Isaacson book on here on my shelf. I believe that, uh, no, yeah, that is the picture on the cover. It is, yes. Yeah, I've got the book right And here. it was also, I forget who did this, somebody rendered it in uh, AppleSoft Basic, and it, after he died, it appeared on a, pictures of a bunch of Apple IIs were running it. San Francisco collage artist Jason Messier, I hope I pronounced that properly, M-E-C-I-E-R, built a, built a portrait of Jobs out of 20 pounds of discarded phones, memory sticks, boards, and more electronic waste items. And then they buried the portrait in the landfill. Well, it may, it may end up there. Um, Along with the Lisa's and E.T. cartridges. <laughs> io9 has a, a nice picture of it. It's on all the you know Mac rumors and stuff like that. Uh, and they say that if you look closely, you can see bits of cell phones, iPods, headphones, Macintosh keyboards, CDRs, batteries, mice, memory sticks, and other upcycled trash from Apple. He said it took 40 hours to piece it all together, and uh, it looks kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how Steve would feel about this. This is almost Tron-like in the way that he's been sucked into his own machines. <laughs> I saw another one that was done with just parts of, I think, just parts of MacBook Pros or something like that. It's the same pose. I don't know if I saw this or if I think I should see it, but there might have been an ASCII art version. Wouldn't surprise me at all. I'm not sure if I actually saw that or if it sounds like something I think I should have seen. Well, there are web pages now where you can just upload a JPEG and it'll give you a, an ASCII art image in return. That's, that's yeah. true. So I'm sure someone's done that. We were thinking about doing that as like a souvenir stand of ECF, where just as like a stupid little $5 souvenir, we take a <laughs> picture and print it out as ASCII art. I don't know. People might like Maybe. that. Maybe. Somebody made a little station where we print your name in a piece of Mylar paper tape. So we print your name as holes, as data, <laughs> in a piece of, and sell it as a wristband. Nice. A Mylar paper tape wristband. And you have to speak paper tape. <laughs> It says the artist has used beans and noodles to celebrate television personalities, candy on caricatures of music celebs, random foodstuffs for random famous folks, and junk for other infamous and historical figures. So he's been doing this stuff for quite a while. He works in multiple media. Well, everybody has a talent. I wonder what his is. Ouch. And another manifestation of Steve Jobs will be appearing on Everybody's Mail in the year 2015. Steve Jobs will be gracing a United States Postal Service postage stamp. Now, I don't remember if they eliminated the rules that somebody has to be dead in order to be on a stamp. I don't think that's true because we have Harry Potter stamps, and he's the boy who didn't die. 
but Steve Jobs certainly would pass that qualification anyway. It's on a list that CNET posted that I think this was part of a uh, survey that the Washington Post held in conjunction with the United States Postal Service to see who would be on future stamps, and Steve Jobs made the cut. I, I don't like it. With all the talk about STEM and the buzzword of the day, let's honor Waz, not Jobs. Well, technically, Waz isn't dead yet. <laughs> what do you mean, technically? <laughs> Nothing against Steve Jobs. I respect what the man did and all that. But we were honoring the wrong guy if you want to teach kids to study hard and everything else. It should be Waz. The way I would put it is that Waz doesn't get the credit he deserves. But Jobs gets too much. Uh, you know, I won't even say that. I'll just say Waz doesn't get enough. We will respectively disagree in that, then. I think Jobs gets too much. As much as... I think Jobs gets... Too much credit as much as Waz gets, not enough. I feel strongly about it. I think that Waz isn't taken as seriously because he's got that sort of uh, jovial, clownish personality, and he sometimes says awkward things and makes people laugh. It's called a nerd. Right, exactly. He's so he's not taken as seriously as Jobs, and I think that's unfortunate. Well, also, a lot of American status is determined by financial value, and that's something that Jobs had in spades over Waz. Not that Waz is doing too shabby. But. Well, no, but of the two, you know, Waz is the genius, Jobs is the businessman. That was the dynamic from the get-go. But if you think about famous stamps, you know, the Wright brothers, Edison, and now, I mean, Edison, I guess he was as much of a businessman as anybody. You could even argue Jobs is the Edison of his day. I don't know. It seems like if you look at historic major figure technology stamps, I'm thinking the engineer. Hmm. And maybe history will prove you right. Jobs only died a few years ago, and Waz is still very much alive, and... You know, Edison, how long was it before he got his stamp? Few, few men are celebrated in their time. Or geniuses seldom recognize. I, I think it's a saying I'm trying to quote and doing a bad job of it. Regardless, I'm just glad that we no longer need to lick our stamps. Well, surprisingly, we don't have that many more news items. And by not many more, I mean none. February is a short month on the calendar, and it gave the Apple II community fewer opportunities to see things realized. So that is the end of our news segment, more or less. Evan, do you have anything you want to add? And Apple II see me from getting beat up in middle school. Wait, what? That Okay, I don't think that's news, but it's nonetheless a story I want to hear. I got to hear this. Do tell. Well, just just like I bet a lot of other of your listeners, you know, I was a childhood nerd, right? All the, the kid, all the, all the bullies picked on, all that stuff. And I remember in about seventh or eighth grade in middle school, every morning before homeroom, they'd call a list of kids who had to go see the principal or the guidance counselor, all the bad kids generally speaking. And one day they called my name. What? And I had I had no confidence back then. I was a total, complete dweeb. And everyone's like, Evan, what could, what could he have done? And I was panicking. Oh no, my mom's going to kill me. What I do, right? <laughs> so I put my tail between my legs and go to see the guidance counselor. I'm all nervous. What on earth have I done? Couldn't think of anything. You know, on the image writer printers, the, 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 what do you call the stuff on the fan fold paper on the side, the little holes? So is there a name for that? Pinholes? The pinholes had come off the, the rollers. And he knew I was a computer. He said, you can, and he wanted me to fix his printer, put the paper back on the rollers. He didn't know how to do it. So I gladly obliged because I had an image at home. It was a piece of cake. He got his printout back in business and all was fine. And I noticed a couple of days later, no one had picked on me lately. So I went to the guy's counselor. He said, oh, no, Evan, what is it this time? What happened now? Who, who beat you up? And I said, look, just, just call my name like once every couple of weeks. <laughs> and it gave me, you know, whole, hallway, hallway cred in middle school because the bad kids thought I must have done something and maybe they shouldn't pick on me anymore. Oh, so it's not that they were respecting your ability to fix the printer. Oh, I, 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 couldn't, I wouldn't dare tell them that. <laughs> no, I, I realized it was, it was to my benefit that the bad kids thought maybe I did something. <laughs> so uh, and, and so every couple of weeks, they just kind of said my name on the speaker. I, I didn't go anywhere. 
and I didn't get bullied as much. Wow, so the administration complied with your request? Well, my mom worked for the school district. They all knew me. Okay. And so the bottom line is, being a computer nerd got me through middle school. Wow. It made me live the high school, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) A very good thing. I can't say that the computer did much for my social status when I was in my preteens. It was certainly something I was known for, but I think it wouldn't have mattered had I been a computer geek had I also been more of an athlete. I had a very small grade school, 20 kids in my graduating class, half boys, half girls, and all the boys played sports except me. So that's what made me the outsider. It wasn't computers. It was not playing sports. I played the trombone and, and marching band. That far outweighed any computer user, computer nerd abuse that I took in middle and high school. Really? They made fun of you for being a band geek? Yeah. But surely that you were in good company. He was in good company. You stopped calling him Shirley. Uh. <laughs> uh, well, I, my band friends, sure, they, they liked me. But <laughs> the, the, the beatings that I took were because of the trombone, not because of my Apple II. Well, with, on that note, let's wrap up this show. Evan, it's been great having you on, learning more about your history and about the Vintage Computer Festival East. You've also been a guest on RetroBits and the Retro Computing Roundtable. It's great to finally get you on Open Apple. Thank you. Between all those shows, I'm sure our audience has had enough of you. Well, thank you, I think. <laughs> I probably won't be coming to VCF this year, but I do hope that our paths cross again. Ooh. Well, you know, next year will be VCF 10, VCF X. I'll call it VCFX. You've got to have a blowout party next year. That sounds awesome. And, however, I have been to infinitely more VCFs than you have Kansas Fests. So I think it might be your turn. O- overall, this will be like my 11th or 12th VCF. And I joke to people, I haven't I haven't attended one in seven years. I've been too busy running. I, I kind of miss just going. <laughs> you know, I don't get this. I don't get to see a lot of this. Having show. been on the Kansas Fest committee for 11 years, I can completely empathize. Yeah, I miss just going. I don't really get to yep. go to these. I've things. heard that same concern from Tony Diaz, who is running Kansas Fest every year. And I got to say, from somebody who knows you and was not on the committee, you're a whole lot nicer when you're not on the committee at Kansas Fest. What does that mean? Oh, you, you <laughs> could ask my you could ask my girlfriend or my colleagues in March. And, you know, for the next thirty days or whatever it is, I'm just a jerk because I'm so stressed. <laughs> well, I'm glad we had you on the show during that period. Then we should have waited till after VCF and then had you on the show. Oh, I'm so mellow. Great. Well, Evan, it's been great hearing from you. Thanks again for coming on Open Apple. Thanks for letting me. And good luck with VCF. Thank you so much. We're totally stoked about this here. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Now, nobody go kill him just to get him on a stamp. I'm not dead yet. Getting better.